Welcome back, music lovers. This is Matt and Cheryl's Gen Excellent Playlist. I'm Matt. I'm Cheryl. And today we will continue to talk about the music of 1976 as we uh, add to our playlist, going through a long period of earliest music memories as uh, once we get through the year 1976, I believe we'll have, what, 21, 23? My math's off. Uh, over 20 songs on our playlist as we pick uh, eight memorable tracks from 1976. We've already added a couple of the biggest hits from that year in our first 1976 episode. That was Rod Stewart's Tonight's the Night and If You Leave Me Now by Chicago. Um, well, here's a, here's a line that's uh, that certainly sticks out to me today, Cheryl. Go-kart Mozart was checking out the weather chart, seeing if it was safe outside. I'm in the atmospheric river down here in Hillsborough, Oregon. We're expecting to get about two inches of rain today. That is, of course, of a one of many memorable lyrical couplets from the song Blinded by the Light, which was the number one hit in 1976. And my pick for song of the year, uh, another song featuring prominent keyboards. In fact, pretty much all keyboards. Gary Wright's Love is Alive. Cheryl's going to talk about that. One of her favorite songs from 1976 and uh, one of two big hits that year for Gary Wright. There's an interesting list, Cheryl. Two hit wonders. Gary Wright would be on that list, right? To the two hits. Dreamweaver and Love well, is Alive. Well, actually, he did have another song. Well, I guess it depends on what you consider a hit. Like how far up in the charts are you considering it to be? Are you talking top 40, top yeah, 10? Got to be at least top 40. But I, I, when, it, when an artist... So Gary Wright had two top 10 big yes. million selling hits. Yes. He would be considered the, yeah, yeah. two hit for top 10. He did have another hit in 1980, which I didn't even remember was him. I really want to know you. I really want to show you the way I feel. Do you remember that song? That sounds familiar. It's Gary. It, Gary if you Wright. heard it, yes, you would be like, oh, yeah, I, I remember that song. It's Gary Wright. Huh. It came out in 19, 1980 or 81. So that song was somewhat of a hit, I would imagine, because it was a radio hit anyway. But but I, I, I get where you're going with the two hit. And yes, he would he would fall more under that category. Well, speaking of hits, if you're uh, if you're you're new to the podcast, uh, Cheryl and I, we're Gen Xers. We're putting together a playlist of musical memories right now from our childhoods. But we're going to work through our high school years and a uh, uh, big playlist of songs that can be used in a Gen X gathering. We're both music freaks. Uh, we both worked in uh, music retail and have worked in the entertainment industry most of our adult lives. I, primarily radio for me these days in sports. Uh, Cheryl and her husband, Mike, uh, co-own a chain of record stores in the Puget Sound area called Silver Platters. We haven't talked a whole lot about contemporary music, Cheryl, at least through our first podcast. I think both you and I are more drawn to the music of the past and, and history. I do try to listen to contemporary music uh, at least every day if I can. I did something the other day that I hadn't done in years, and that is by a new record not on new release day but pretty close to new release day i mean it had been geez i don't want to say 10 years we're probably getting on close to it used to be your favorite artist when they came out with a new record it would come out on a tuesday more often than not and you'd be at the record store buying that day of release it's been a long time since i did that love this band and i only really started listing them uh i guess be four years ago now we took a summer vacation the family and i to calgary Calgary, known for Calgary Stampede, the big festival and rodeo, which uh, was going on while we were there. And Sloan played a concert at Stampede. Uh, I went. I was familiar with the band's name. 
and nothing else. I'd known about him for years. They kind of been on the radar for a long time. Uh, they've been around since early nineties. And, uh, so how I stay in touch with new music, I get, I get three publications, Mojo magazine, uncut magazine, two British monthlies, and then an American magazine called the big takeover, which generally comes out twice a year. And that covers primarily independent music, a lot of, you know, independent artists. And it's really the work of one guy named, uh, goes by the name of Jack rabbit. Uh, he's been putting out this rag for gosh, started as like a fanzine, like a mimeograph fanzine back in the early 80s. He was part of the New York hardcore scene in the early 80s. So Jack Rabbit was a big proponent of these guys, Sloan, for, for, from the get-go. He's been rhapsodizing about this group. So I've been aware of them for a long time, but I knew it was something I wanted to check out for years and years. And here was the opportunity. Went by myself uh, to this little club set up at Calgary Stampede. Oh, God, they were great. They were so great. And one of the unique things about this band, very few bands like this. So they've been around, like I said, since the early 90s, 30 years. Same four dudes. They're from Halifax, Nova Scotia. Now they're based in Toronto. Same four guys. Lead guitar, rhythm guitar, bass drums. All four of them write. All four of them sing. Sound familiar? Moby Grape, anyone? Uh, and the cool thing about how they do it, first of all, it's a completely democratic band. The songwriting, lead vocal duties, Shared fairly, not exactly equally, but on a lot of their albums, like if, if there's 12 tracks, say, uh, you'll have three songs from each of the guys. Now, live, when they play live, wh whoever song it is they're playing will step up front to do the vocals and play guitar. So if it's the drummer's song, he gets out from behind the kit, straps on a guitar, he's the lead vocalist. So they're constantly switching instruments depending on who is singing the song at that particular time. The bass player, Chris Murphy, goes behind the drums when the drummer is singing and it's it's power pop so it's uh, you know crunchy guitars loud drums incredibly melodic songs and the consistency throughout their their lifespan is, has been incredible and i'm still really just getting to know their catalog there's only three of their albums that i've listened to with any depth and that would be their their previous album 12 which was what they were touring when I saw them in Calgary, that's what really turned me on to them. Cause I know here's a veteran band. These been, they've been around long enough that they're practically, you know, a lot of bands of this age would be a legacy act now trading on their past hits and not knowing any of their songs. I didn't know if what they were playing was primarily new music or you could tell by the way, the crowd was reacting, which were older songs or more familiar to the audience. But the thing that struck me, not knowing their music at all, seeing them live for the first time, being exposed to them that way was how everything blended together. It's like it was all good, all equally good. And you know they're playing new songs. I mean, they're touring a new album, so clearly they're playing a lot of new songs off this album. And everything fit together seamlessly and sounded great. So I'm like, man, got to definitely get my act together and start checking these guys out. The album is wonderful. Their, their second LP, Twice Removed, uh, there have been polls in Canada saying greatest Canadian album ever released. <laughs> That's a really good one. It's got the song Pen Pals on it, which if you're checking out Sloan for the first time, I would go there pretty early on. That, that should have been a big radio hit in the United States. And then they put out an album a few years later called Navy Blues, which is kind of like their heavier, a lot of different influences coming into this group. Punk New Wave, hardcore, uh, obviously, you know, Beatles type pop rock with the, with the power pop sound uh, and, you know, heavier you know, AOR type rock, uh, which is more the influence on that Navy blues album. That is a killer album as well. 
a uh, whole bunch of other albums I haven't even gotten to yet. It's just exciting to me to know that I've got all of this stuff yet to discover with Sloan, and I've only listened to their new album a couple, three times so far. Not as immediately grabby as their last one, 12, but still quality throughout. I, I hear there might be signs of the unity cracking a little bit, like they had to drag the drummer into the studio. He wasn't really motivated, uh, but he's got a couple of songs. His songs are cool. They're they're very different from the other three guys, very much more of a, a psychedelic feel, a lot like a Robin Hitchcock feel to a lot of his songs. The other three guys, definitely grabbier power pop. To, and Patrick Pentland, the lead guitarist, he kind of bounces back and forth between harder-edged punk-influenced stuff and more pop-influenced stuff. But highly recommend this group, Sloan, if you have never checked them out. That's that's their new record. And of course, uh, uh, go on down to your nearest silver platters and pick that up after you give it a shot. But um, yeah, I you know I, I I don't buy too many records, Cheryl. But Sloan is like the only band where their two newest releases, the only physical media I have is is LPs. I haven't gotten to see. I'm a CD guy through and yeah, through. Yeah, I was surprised you bought yeah. that on vinyl. Yeah. But that's kind of the transition that I'm making now to this new world of streaming. I mean, I avoided it for a long time. When we were up in Canada, after seeing the show, we, uh, my wife, Julia, who's the, the tech person in the family, got me connected with the record on, on Apple Music. And I was, that's really the way I've listened to it. Never spun the CD. I've, I've yet to find it used. But that was kind of the transition in my listening habits to starting to use streaming more. And I'm doing that more with, with new releases, especially. So I, I'm listening to about five, six, 2022 albums at this point, all on streaming. Uh, and this is the only one I've purchased so far, this, this Sloan record. So, you know, I, I, I'm not super down with a lot of new music, uh, but I do try to make sure I at least stay in touch with, you know, what's, what's critically happening. In yeah. contemporary music, if not the pop charts. I mean, it, it, working in sports, you're going to be exposed <laughs> to the pop stuff, whether you like it or not, a lot of the hip hop stuff. But um, so I don't know, where, how do you see your, I mean, you work at a record store, so it's a lot easier for you to stay connected to what's happening in music. But I, I think you're like me. You're still primarily stuck in the past, right? I am very disconnected. <laughs> 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 well, actually, the only genre I really stay connected with current music is prog prog rock and i actually do read prog magazine so in the same vein of looking at mojo and things that are coming out there new and i do the same thing i i use streaming to introduce myself to especially new music and then if it's something that i really like and want to explore more i have found that i've been buying it on vinyl and sometimes on cd but oftentimes on vinyl and I think it goes back to the whole, I like to have the the big yeah. thing to look at and the and to hold. And, you know, it kind of, it, it just brings me back to the days of when vinyl was the only option. And there's just something more exciting about it. Plus, I think it, it just, it sounds really cool too. And you have to make a point to really sit down and listen when you're listening to a record, like you have to physically take it out, put it on. I mean, you do that with CDs too, but it just feels like even more involved because you also have to flip it over <laughs> when it gets to the side too. And so, so yeah, I mean, I have over the last couple of years, especially because during the lockdown, there were so many new prog albums that came out. There was just this big jump in, in new music. And um, other than that, I would say, are you are you going to drop a couple of names on us? Some newer prog bands that are 
worth new bands. Out? Well, yeah. I mean, actually, I shouldn't say most of them aren't necessarily new bands, but they might still be bands releasing that are new, new to music. me, and they're yeah. still releasing new music, like Transatlantic. Um, Royne Stolt, who's this, he's in Transatlantic. It's kind of a super group. He's got a couple solo albums that came out. He was extremely prolific during this time. He had an album that came out with John Anderson from Yes that I love. Fish, who was the lead singer for Marillion way back in the 80s. Not the PH Fish. Not the PH, the F Fish. He put out a new album that is his swan song, like his last album of his career. And it's amazing. He actually did a really cool thing. He started this thing called Fish on Fridays, where every Friday he was doing a (laughs) Facebook Live. And uh, I mean, I... I became really involved in it. Like I watched it every week and there was a whole community around it, a Facebook community. And that was really cool because he's a great storyteller. He's, it's just really interesting to sit there and listen to him tell his tales, you know, of all the years that he had working in the music business. And so anyway, that was really cool. Um, I don't know. Now I'm drawing a blank as far as names go. I got I got to ask. Uh, oh, I gotta, oh, the Flower Kings, which is another Roy Stolt. This guy, he put out like five albums in different incarnations, <laughs> and several of them are double albums. Like, that's how much music he had. He's from Sweden. A lot of these prog bands are from, you know, Sweden, Norway, Scandinavian countries. This guy is like, I can't believe that he isn't more well known because of all the people he's worked with and all the music he's put out. And it's, I am blown away by how great it is. And you know how complicated Prague is. Sure. This isn't just like we're going to sit down and write a two minute pop ditty, you know, and churn them out. We're talking like epic length album side songs sometimes. And and it's all quality material. It's pretty amazing. I got to ask you this before we move on. Fish, where do you sit on the pH fish? Yay or nay? I have no opinion. I would get, I'd say nay because I'm not a jam band person. I don't really care for that kind of that style. I haven't really listened to them, so I couldn't I shouldn't say I shouldn't have an opinion at all. I don't really because I really haven't listened to them enough to have an opinion, but I will say I've never been interested in trying to know and more about them. So uh. Yeah, I, uh, I'm, you I'm, like a big, them? I'm a big yay there, and I'm not a jam oh. band fan either for the most part, but I was definitely on board with those guys. Do we'll you know th- about that album that they had that was fake, that was supposedly this? Okay, I stumbled upon this when I was just <laughs> going through all music, and I totally fell for it. So they put out this album. I don't even know when they did it. I think it was maybe in the 90s. They created this whole story behind it that it was like a lost album from the 60s, that was really rare. It only they only pressed like 500 copies of it, and it's something that collectors were like, you know, trying to. And so they they created this whole backstory and everything about it. And I'm like, that's like m- totally right in my wheelhouse. Like I love that kind of stuff. <laughs> and so I was like, what is this? And so I started delving, you know, and deeper into it and going down the rabbit hole. And it and it actually it took me a while to get to the point where I was convinced. Oh, it's fish. <laughs> because because even the fans, everybody was in on it. Like people were writing reviews about it on All Music. It actually has an All Music review page that goes along with the whole story and there's people like saying, "Yeah, this I can't believe I finally get to hear this album." It's and then finally I was like, "Oh, okay, I've been duped." <laughs> <laughs> so not- I do I respect 
respect them for that because I thought that was really cool. And I did find some live Trey, Trey Anastasio. That's the fish guy, yeah, right? Yeah. I found some live stuff where he was performing the album live, but he was making it seem like he was covering the songs by this band. Like, oh, you know, this album and and these songs are so great. And like he's bringing them back out into, you know, the limelight now in this in this era. But actually, they are their fish songs. <laughs> <laughs> now, I remember when we were working at Silver Platters, there was a fish album in the racks. And I remember just, I remember noticing it because the album cover was so hideous. It was the oh. the, lawn, the Lawn Boy album with like the Electrolux vacuum cleaner with the thing sticking out of the, and I just, I remember noticing that and thinking, God, that was one of the dumbest, cheapest, stupidest looking out. I just kind of wondered what possible kind of music could this be? And I, I remember there was some kid in the store once and we got to talking for some reason because, and I found he was from Vermont. You don't, you don't run into people from Vermont very often in North Seattle. And I just, I don't know. I just happened to make a comment. Uh, we were like standing near that disc and I happened to make a comment about it. And all of a sudden the kid was like, Oh, those guys are so great. And just started going off about fish and how people follow them around and how big they are in the Northeast. It was like, Really? I knew nothing about him at that point. And then right after that, I started, uh, you know, a friend of mine, a college roommate, had popped back up at Portland. I started going down there to visit with him and party with him and his roommates, uh, you know, about once a, a month. And somebody at their house popped in a tape of Fish, like a bootleg recording, live recording. And I was like, Jesus Christ, these guys are incredible. It's it, phenomenal band and then uh fell down the rabbit hole uh, shortly after that their first electra album uh came out and uh, i was hooked i actually saw them live a couple of times before they were big uh right after i moved down to arizona they played a little club in tempe saw them down there saw them at the roseland in portland uh this is before they became huge with their live album a live one no i've i big fan big fan of it you know it I'm just a, I'm a big fan of musicians and groups that are music fans. I mean, people who are obsessive record collector type fans first before they become popular music acts. And, and all these guys at Fish, obviously, very knowledgeable music fans. They're drawing from a lot of prog and classic rock sources. Pretty incredible what they've done for decades now with their Halloween shows where they'll take a classic rock album, play it live, start to finish. Uh, I can't. Quadrophenia might have been one of the first they did that with back in the nineties, but uh, yeah, I my didn't know they did that actually. Oh I no, I've never yeah. seen any of those or heard heard of that. Yeah, they're a phenomenal group. Best experience live, of course. But I mean, I've never been one of those fishhead types that follows them around in a VW bus or anything like that. And to go to one of their shows back then, uh, again before they were mainstream popular, that was an experience because already they had this deadhead type following and all these kids following them around city to city. A lot of hippie types, but yeah, I, I, I haven't listened to them too much in the last 10, 20 years, but I, you know, back in the day, definitely a big, big fish fan. But I want to stay, let's stay on the prog topic here because the first song we're going to add to our playlist uh, is a band that was proffering up a lot of prog in the 1970s. Uh, they broke out in the 60s, a British invasion group called Manfred Mann that's named after the keyboard player who is uh, from South Africa. The band formed in London. Early 60s, they were kind of part of the same circuit as the Rolling Stones, uh, groups coming with a, a blues and jazz influence. 
Uh, and then they had their their breakout hit, Dua Diddy Diddy, which was number one on both sides of the Atlantic in the mid In fact, trivia question here, it was the first number one song by a British invasion band uh, that wasn't from the north of England. So the early British invasion hits primarily all Beatles, but Animals House of the Rising Sun, Animals were from Newcastle, northern England. Hollies were from Manchester. Uh, you had Jerry and the Pacemakers, also from Liverpool. So uh, the, the first wave of British invasion groups was mainly Northerners, and Manfred Mann was the first group from the London area to actually top the charts in the United States. They had three number one hits in England in the 60s, Pretty Flamingo and The Mighty Quinn was the other. Toward the end of the decade, they started covering a lot of Bob Dylan songs, and this would kind of be their approach for much of their career. All really technically accomplished players, uh, they would morph into a prog rock band in the 1970s. They changed the name uh, from Manfred Mann to Manfred Mann's Earth Band. So a lot of their records, a lot, of, a lot of heavy prog, technically difficult music, but their singles were almost always covers. So they started covering all these Dylan songs in the late 60s. They continued to do that in the 70s. And then in the mid-70s, they discovered this young American songwriter by the name of Bruce Springsteen, who was just starting to break through on his own. Bruce wasn't really a hit act until his third record, which was Born to Run in 1975. He'd released two albums before that. Uh, Greetings from Asbury Park, New Jersey in 72, and The Wild Innocent East Street Shuffle from 1973. And he built up some steam with those two records, uh, got a lot of critics on board. And by the time his third record came out, there was some anticipation. And of course, Born to Run was a big blockbuster, both the single and the record. And then he disappeared for a few years with legal problems trying to get out of a, a management contract. Meanwhile, a lot of other musicians are picking up on this great new young songwriter, definitely from the Dylan School. And if you listen to Bruce's version of Blinded by the Light, it's the first track on his first album, Greens from Asbury Park, New Jersey. Just a torrent of lyrics. And there's a, a, a fun clip on YouTube where he's he's doing a live performance, but he's he's talking about his history and the history of the songs. He's kind of the pretension is he's gonna he's gonna tell you what Blinded by the Light is about and go through the song line by line. Doesn't really do that. He kind of whips through a lot of it without talking. And a lot of the stuff he goes, Well, that's self-explanatory. And I think when he says that, it has to do with sex just about every time. <laughs> well, that line's self-explanatory. It's like, really? Is it, though, Bruce? Really? Manfred Mann, uh, they'd already released a spring scene song and had a hit with it, a minor hit, Spirits of the Night, the previous year off their Nightingales and Bombers album from 75. Then in 1976, The Roaring Silence, they released their cover of Blinded by the Light, immediately arresting because of the, the, the keyboard hook right from the beginning. The little two-finger keyboard riff, it hooks you right in. And the song's full of hooks, primarily coming from the keyboards, the synths. A lot of the synth sounds and sound effects on this record very much place it in that era. But they take ownership of this song. Uh, Now, I I just listened to Bruce's version again. I've always preferred Manfred Mann's by a long stretch. Bruce Springsteen is one of those guys... I, I would never have considered myself a big Bruce Springsteen fan over the years, but I, I didn't hate him. I didn't dislike him. But my appreciation uh, for him has grown consistently throughout the years. It continues to grow. I got most of his albums now. Haven't listened to some of them yet. I have listened to his second album quite a bit, uh, Wild and Innocent in the East Street Shuffle. It's funny that, you know, you listen to newer Bruce and then go back to it's a really different. They were a lot, a lot more complicated back then. Very. Yeah. Very technically pro- proficient band, a lot going on on those tracks. Horn arrangements. Right. And yeah. Shift, a lot of shifts and turns, mm-hmm. uh, changing mm-hmm. time signatures, 
Uh, incredible hot band that he had from the get-go, the E Street mm-hmm. Band, of course. Between uh, while the instant E Street Shuffle and in the breakout uh, Born to Run, there was a big change of the band with a couple of guys leaving, the drummer Vinny Lopez and David Sanctious, who was a multi-instrumentalist, primarily keyboards in the group. That's when Max Weinberg comes in on drums. And then that's the classic E Street Band lineup from then on to the, to the uh, mid-80s. His song is undeniably great, but Manfred Mann's arrangement is, uh, they just take ownership of that song. And a lot of the hooks come from the keyboards. Uh, their prior albums have been very proggy, but they'd had a shift in personnel prior to this album. New rhythm guitarist and lead vocalist uh, named Chris Thompson. Great vocal performance on this song. The guitar player is Dave Flett. He's new to the group at this point. The prior guy, Mick Rogers, and handle lead vocals and lead guitar for their first several albums as Manfred Band's Earth Band, the, the, the Prague-flavored albums. He would leave and come back later on. But one of the things I love about this song, when you hear it, it just takes you back to that era. Whenever I hear that song, I can picture myself in a car ride with the family, maybe uh, on a summer night, and it just, it just puts you back there hearing that on the radio, uh, at least for me. It, it, it evokes that, that kind of nostalgic feeling. And yeah, the it's other, kind of a timepiece. Uh, now, the elephant in the room that we have yet to address is the lyric. So, obviously, Blinded by the Light, just this torrent of lyrics from Bruce Ring- Springsteen and incredible rhyming throughout the song. Uh, much like the birds with their approach to Dylan and their early albums, they, they chopped out a bunch of the lyric content. But one lyric that they, they changed caught a lot of attention and bruce springsteen has even himself speculated that might be a reason the song was such a huge hit this is the only springsteen song to ever hit number one on the charts believe it or not born of the usa never made it to number one dancing in the dark never made it to number one born mm-hmm. to run never made it to number one uh manfred man's cover blinded by the light was bruce springsteen's only number one hit they took one lyric and they changed it and i know a lot of people back then heard it the same way me included the line on Bruce's recording of the song goes, cut loose like a deuce, another runner in the night. Deuce is a reference to a, a car. Deuce coupe, like little deuce coupe. My little deuce coupe, you don't know what I got. A deuce coupe is uh, uh, light. It refers to like a hot rod, an old two-seater. I think the classic deuce coupe is a 32 Ford. Two-seater that a lot of car enthusiasts would customize. You know, get your lake pipes and your mag wheels and whatnot and jack it up. A lot of car references on Bruce Springsteen's lyrics, even though I don't think he drove until later in life. I don't think he drove a car at all. Um, Manfred Mann's version, most people heard it this way, wrapped up like a douche, another rumor in the night. And I'm sure people were like, what did he just, huh? (laughs) Manfred Mann has, (laughs) Manfred Mann, now they, they did tweak the lyric instead of saying cut loose like a douche. Man for Man says they meant to say revved up like a deuce, but it comes out saying wrapped, wrapped up like a deuce. Like Man for Man, like Man has claimed that it wasn't a misread lyric, that it was some sort of technical issue with tape heads that caused the recording to sound that way. And he said, just because of the nature of the, the fly it was nothing, we, we couldn't mix it out. We, we, if we had to change it, we had to re-record it. We didn't want to do that. So they just left it as it is. I don't know that I'm buying his story. I, th- I think that. Okay. You know, I think it what? was just red wrong. I actually, I actually believe him <laughs> because <laughs> if you go back and listen to live versions of this song, he clearly says deuce. 
Yeah. Now, it's kind of strange, though, because I'd say it's kind of 50-50. Like, sometimes it's very clear, like, he sounds like he's trying to enunciate the word deuce, so it sounds like it. Other times, it kind of has, like, a more muddy sense to it, where it's kind of like douche. But I did, I, I went back and, like, really kind of studied this to see, and I don't think they intentionally are saying the word douche. <laughs> but I still have to question why they didn't go back and re-record it, because... <laughs> They were worried that the Southern Bible Belt radio stations might not play the song because of the lyric that is clearly heard. Then you'd think that they would have thought, okay, let's not take our chances. Let's just now, obviously, it didn't keep radio stations from playing the song because it still became a number one hit. I can't imagine Bruce was a big fan of his lyric being changed to wrapped up like a douche. I'm sure he loved the royalty checks, but. Yeah, well, I don't think that's why I think that Man for Man actually was like trying to avoid ever meeting or talking to Bruce because <laughs> he was embarrassed by it. And and maybe it was more that he was embarrassed that they didn't go back and re-record it. Not that he changed the lyric, but that it does sound like that and that that's that's how it is from now forever now. <laughs> like there's no going back. <laughs> But it is funny if you watch the Bruce Springsteen storytellers, the VH1 storytellers, where he tells he talks about the song and he says, you know, well, may, maybe that's why it was a hit. <laughs> <laughs> Just another one of the many quirks and flukes that go into a song taking off and becoming a hit. You can never predict what's going to happen. One of my favorite songs of the set. I've loved it since it was a hit from when it came out, and and still love it to this day. And and Cheryl, you're you're a fan of the the earlier prog albums from Manfred Man's Earth Band. Early and all the way through into the 80s, actually. The first Manfred Man Earth Band, it's actually more rock than prog. Like, they start to get lumped into prog at that point because there's a lot of synths, you know, and and I mean, that's Manfred Man was a keyboardist and played Moog and all the other synths. And so, you know, it does, it is very synth heavy in that way, but that album is actually really more rock and it's got a couple of really cool songs that I'm surprised didn't become radio hits. It's just called Man for Man's Earth Band. There's this one song, California Coastline, that you should listen to it, Matt, because it's really cool. It's got this neat little like, da, 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 da. <laughs> it's like this cool groove to it. Uh-huh. Um, that song should have been a radio hit. Anyway, I mean, they, they have a lot of albums just in the 70s. Yeah, he's still I mean, kicking they around these put days. Out, Man for Man's Earth Band had already put out seven albums before The Roaring Silence came out. One of them right here, Solar Fire, I think. Yeah, lot, that, one, lot, that one's lot really the, cool. A lot of the prog Manfred fans would probably pick this as one of their best. That one is very prog, yes. And then I got, um, I got this baby at... Silver Platters in Linwood. Haven't listened to it yet, but uh, what's this called? Chance Chance from 1980. Mm -hmm. That's kind of in your wheelhouse. You're really into the... I really like that one. And actually, that's the album that has um, another Springsteen cover for you. Is that his first record, That's also off of Asbury Park. Yeah. And then he also has... Okay, so Spirits in the Night, which is actually called Spirit in the Night, but they changed it to Spirits in the Night. They took liberties, did they not? (laughs) They did, yeah. yeah. Arrogant bastards. Blinded by the Light and For You... They kind of have a a similar treatment on all their Springsteen covers where, especially in the chorus, they they do more like a staccato spirit in the night, particularly spirit in the night, all night. They do that on For You as well. Um, But it actually, it sounds really cool. 
And I think the same thing with Blinded by the Light. Like you said, they take liberties, they make it their own. They added that little interlude after the long guitar solo where the keyboard player plays chopsticks. Yeah, it's, it's da, the long da, version. Da, 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 da. Yeah, that's the that's, long version. It's almost like a reaction to that initial riff that hooks you into the song with the two. It's a two fingered riff. So chopsticks, if anybody who's played piano, you do that with two fingers. Mm hmm. And the long version, the guitar is just like awesome. Yeah. Guitar solos. These guys are like guitar gods. I don't even know who's playing guitar on these. And I'm sure it's more than one guy. One of the things about Manfred Band, they endured over the years, but they went through tons of lineup changes. So, I mean, the initial hits, Paul Jones was kind of the hook there with his vocals. And then uh, Mike Dabo was the lead vocalist in the late 60s when Mighty Quinn was a hit. Then when they morphed into Manfred Man's Earth Band, Mick Rogers was the front man. He was the lead guitarist and the lead vocalist on all the albums up until, uh, I can't remember if Roaring Silence was the first one. I think Roaring Silence was the first one with Chris Thompson taking over mm-hmm. the lead vocal. Chris Thompson was the rhythm guitarist. And they brought in a lead guitarist named Dave Flood, who does a great solo on Blinded by the Light. Okay. The solos on these on that song and just like I said throughout all of their albums are just amazing. Like these guys and it's funny because they're all so anonymous to me. Like I don't yeah. know anybody in this band and even even Manford Mann is it's kind of odd because the band was named after him. He wasn't the lead singer. Yeah, he's the he professorial the looking, you know, the guy with the glasses at the keyboard. And, yeah. Yeah. Like he's not a front man, and no. the fact that the band was even named after him to begin with, apparently he he says that he didn't really want that, but maybe they just thought his name sounded cool, so they were yeah. like, "No, this is a good name, so let's use it." And but it was always, I think, it always kind of led to some confusion, especially with the early, with the '60s version, because Paul Jones, who's the singer, you know, and obviously the front man and great vocal, yes. great vocalist, probably one of the best of that era, mm-hmm. and. You know, people are like, well, he must be man for man because the name, the usually it's the front man that the band's named after. And so that that led to, you know, a lot of confusion there. The Jethro Toll syndrome. <laughs> well, at least there was an actual man for man, not yes. like Jethro Toll. <laughs> uh, Jay Giles. Jay Giles band. That's better. Yeah. yeah. That's Who's an Jay example. Giles? Yeah. Right. It's not Peter Wolf. Nope. He's the lead singer. <laughs> right. So it's similar to that. So anyway, you go on throughout the 70s career of Manfred Mann's Earth Band, and you have the same kind of situation where you're like, okay, there's more than one guy playing keyboards back there too. So which one is Manfred Mann? <laughs> and the the keyboards in the 70s stuff, well, actually even in the 80s stuff too, it just changes. Once their 80s albums come around, it becomes more of an 80s synth sound. So they're not doing as much of the long, it's still prog, but it's like, 80s neo prog you know yeah, they're, AOR, they're not doing yeah. yeah it doesn't have they're not doing the long passages with the t- with the you know really more complicated time changes it's just more synth heavy so it's still considered prog they would not have another big smash hit after blinded by the light but they did have another minor hit in the 80s so they had hits in three different decades so yeah the, the they 60s- did they had a hit in 1983 uh, called runner yep which is about terry fox the marathon runner who had cancer that song was an mtv Mm -hmm. song like i remember seeing the video on early mtv back in the day when there really weren't that many videos they played that video often i don't know if he's still putting out new records but i think manfred man's still kicking around with groups and 
He Quite is. Live. Do yeah. you know that in 2006, he recorded one song with Super Furry Animals? I did not know that. I, hey, there's a nice nugget. Yeah. A, a band we were going to talk about today if we have time. Uh, but I do want to stay on the keyboard theme. You know, a, a, a lot to love about Blinded by the Light. Great performances across the board. Great vocal performance by Chris Thompson. Really, it's the keyboards that hook you into that song, though. The, the keyboard, yeah. uh, the synths, uh, the, the sound effects. Our next song, uh, it's all keyboards, mm-hmm. basically. Uh, the artist's name is Gary Wright. The song is Love is Alive. Now, we mentioned Gary Wright. Two big hits off the same album. The album was the Dreamweaver, and we all know the song Dreamweaver. Uh, that's what most people know Gary Wright for. But he had another big hit off that same record, a song that you and I much prefer, Cheryl, uh, that I think has aged a lot better. Yeah. Uh, and that's Love is Alive. Mm-hmm. And actually, that's kind of another one of those songs for a long time. I didn't realize, I mean, I didn't really know a lot about Gary Wright or who he was or anything but I knew Dreamweaver and Love is Alive was kind of like always in the in my mind as a song I recognize from the radio. But I never really made the connection that it was the same guy that did Dreamweaver. <laughs> um, and I didn't realize that Love is Alive was such a big hit. I think a lot of it is because Dreamweaver continued to have a long life, which was also resurrected in the 90s from Wayne's World. The Wayne's World movie, they actually re-recorded the song for that soundtrack and it became a hit again. And it's just it's just always been around on the radio. Love is Alive kind of seems a little bit more under the radar to me. You don't hear it as often on classic radio. You might hear it more like, you know, every once in a while, but it's not ingrained in our pop culture like Dreamweaver is. But great song. I love the whole album, actually. The whole Dreamweaver album. Gary Wright, he started in a band called Spooky Tooth. Once again, it's a name that I think is really dumb because it has yeah. a body part in it. And I don't like band names that have body heavy, parts. Heavy band. Heavy band. Yeah. Yeah, they are. They're definitely more like in a in a a heavier rock vein, but it's actually light a little bit lighter than I thought it was. I have gone back and listened to them now, but they're not it's not really that interesting to me. Like I yeah. haven't really wanted to go back and listen. I remember buying the Spooky Two album in college mm-hmm. and not, not loving it, eventually trading it in. And the Spooky 2 album is the one that you read in the record guides, yeah. like Rolling Stone record. Yeah. Guy. Like, That's the one you want to get. And so I've always kind of been curious about it. And then I went and listened to it. I'm like, eh, it's fine. Yeah. Uh, but he went on actually to record with George Harrison. He played on All Things Must Pass. Uh, I think actually before that, he recorded a solo album. He left Spooky Tooth, recorded a solo album. Klaus Vorman, who Beatle fans will recognize his name bass player, friend of the Beatles. He's actually the one that that drew and designed the Revolver cover. So he played on his first solo album, Klaus Vorman did, and that made the connection to bring him into George Harrison's hemisphere. And yeah, so Vorman, Gary Wright, a, Vorman, a friend of the Beatles from the, from the, uh, the Hamburg, Hamburg, days. Hamburg days. Yeah, when mm-hmm. they would travel over to Germany and play tons of shows. The Reaperbahn, yeah. yeah. Exactly. So anyway, he got into that circle and recorded a second album called Footprints or Footprint that actually featured George George Harrison. George produced some of the album and plays um, slide guitar in a couple songs. Uh, has Alan White on drums, who also played with John Lennon, played on George and Ringo solo albums, and later joined Yes. 
And that album is actually really good. I I went back and listened to that album and some cool songs. I it's very similar to George Harrison's solo material from the 70s like the the early to mid 70s. So anybody who likes uh George's solo work, I would go check out that Footprint album cuz it's it is very similar and has a lot of the same players on it. So then after that he went into the studio with, you know, the songs for the Dreamweaver album. He I mean Gary Wright is a keyboard player and he actually ended up recording that album with basically only keyboards and drums. There is guitar on one song, but everything else you hear on that album, keyboards, which was kind of unusual at the time for a rock album. I mean, this isn't like an electronica album and this isn't, a, you know, so it was pretty unusual and it doesn't feel like it's just a keyboard album. I mean, it has a bass feel to it, has, yeah. you know, which he's playing on the keys and you get a lot of different sounds. From the keyboard. Yeah. 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 So, I mean, I guess it does make it interesting in that sense. Um, but that album, I mean, some of the songs are like really kind of funky. It's got a soulfulness to it. It's got, I mean, his vocals, you know, he's got like that kind of blue eyed soul sound in his yep. vocals. And I think Love is Alive, it's got a really good groove to it, which I think is why this song, why I prefer this song, because Dreamweaver has more of that sort of spacey, like it even starts out with the you know spacey feel to it I just closed my eyes again (laughs) climbed aboard the dream weaver train (laughs) i mean really this song is pretty darn cheesy like that song i I I do i love it i do too i do too but it's really not indicative of the sound of the album. Like the album is (laughs) much more like love is alive. It's got like a cool, like that. You know, it's, it's a little bit more, I mean, I wouldn't call that heavy by any means, but it feels more rock oriented, you know, and it just, yeah, but there's a lot of really cool. I'm sure hooks hooks in this album and, I'm, and I'm, in that song i'm sure i'm sure some hip-hop guys have sampled that groove that yeah they should it, yeah i would think so too because it, it would definitely lend itself to that he had more than one keyboard player on his record though right? i think david foster played on the album yeah david foster did play on the album yep there's another connection to chicago there you go also another connection to man for man man for man recorded uh, one of Gary Wright's songs from Footprint called Give Me the Good Earth. And a Man for Man even had named the album The Good Earth after that song. And it's interesting because you have Man for Man, who's also keys, you know, keyboardist since all that. Gary Wright, same thing. Uh, Man for Man's version, once again, taking another songwriter's song, making it his own. He turns it into this epic, like eight minute long song, whereas Gary Wright's version is more just normal, like three minute song. And he puts in all these flourishes, man for man does all these extra, you know, proggy stuff in the middle, but it works. It's really cool. And it works both ways. I think that's one of the things that going back to man for man, sorry, I know we were off that, but (laughs) it's so interesting about him is that he's able to take a song that, that is great in both incarnations, you know, the original and what he does with them. Well, he does that with this Gary Wright song as well. Um, you know, I was thinking about this too, with what Manfred Mann was doing with taking these uh, these cover songs, these songs by popular artists and building these ornate arrangements around them, recreating it. It's a lot, very similar to what Yes was doing on their first couple of albums. where they Like with America. 
uh, with America with uh, uh, no opportunity necessary. Richie Havens, I love, I love their arrangement of that. Every Little Thing, the Beatles cover. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's from their, a really cool from their first album. version. Mm-hmm. So yes, yes was doing something very similar in a prog vein. So, okay, let's see. We're going back now, though, to, uh, to Gary Wright. Live versions of this song. First, maybe we should talk about the Midnight Special. Oh, yeah. Which, I'm jealous. You've got the Midnight Special DVD collection. Yes, as seen on TV. Are you like me where when those time, time life infomercials come on, you sit there and you watch the whole half hour glued to it? Yeah, you know what? Yeah, it's it's right. funny because I've, I was thinking about this, actually. Going back to like the 80s, before streaming and we could actually go online and just listen to things, anything that we wanted to, there were a lot of commercials for record collections that I became familiar with songs through those commercials. Right. And the other thing about those too is they show clips, like live performance clips. And so a lot of these were coming from things like the Midnight Special or even going back earlier to like Beat Club or Shindig or, you know, the more the American versions of those TV. Hullabaloo. Music shows, Hullabaloo. Where the action is. Yeah. And it's like, that was fascinating to me too. Cause I'm like, what are all these video clips that of these bands performing live? And, you know, we had no way to see these. So yeah, I, I was, I was really interested in, in that. Um, Midnight special. These performances are priceless. Oh yeah. They're all live. There's such an array of artists that performed on this show. There's a performance of love is alive. There's also one of Dreamweaver. Most of the time they do two songs. Each artist would do two songs. And First of all, Gary Wright and the other keyboardist, because yeah, there is another keyboardist, are playing. They they wouldn't be called keytars because they don't actually have a neck to them. Yeah, but they're more like they just strapped on a keyboard yeah. <laughs> around their neck. Put a guitar strap around a big bulky synthesizer, hung it around their neck yes. so they could play so standing up. Yeah, so he yeah, could be a frontman while playing and like okay, that's. I mean, you mentioned Edgar Winter had done that. I think Edgar Winter was kind of the first to do that. Uh, yeah. Maybe probably the best known guy. Yeah. With Fra- Frankenstein was a With Frankenstein. huge, yeah, 73. Yes. That was a big number one hit. Uh, I think that's the first time see- anybody ever really saw that. Yeah, you didn't really see people doing that. And and I think that maybe that actually like led to the guitar, which I guess we can blame them for that. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, the live performances are pretty cool. Although when you watch the Dreamweaver one, you see him in his in his flowing like silk kimono ish gown, and he <laughs> it really adds to the cheese factor. Yeah, there's live clips of him from Midnight Special and Don Kirshner's rock concert, which was like a I don't know what Midnight Special I believe was NBC and Don Kirshner's rock concert was ABC. ABC. So mm-hmm. there were these competing shows that have live. Rock I don't know perform- if they were on at the same time though. Um, It's really interesting how that doesn't happen now. I mean, in the 70s, there were so many shows on the major networks. They showed music on TV much more regularly. Like they had these, they had the Midnight Special, they had the In Concert. And then even just like Dick Cavett's show or the variety shows that they featured musical acts or were usually hosted by musicians like Sonny and Jared, Tony Orlando and Don. That just went to the wayside. Yeah, you're right. I mean, it's really only the the late night talk shows now and Saturday Night Live will have a musical. Right. I mean, that's been a mainstay where they've always had a musical guest on Saturday Night Live. 
but they're kind of like treasures now <laughs> that we had those, you know, that we can still go back and watch them because so much of it is on YouTube now. Yeah, I hadn't really thought about that, but but you're right. And uh, it's uh, it's just great that we have this archive of great live recorded music from Midnight Special. I don't know that the rock concert stuff has been released on DVD. I, I, I was digging around online and it looked like there was an announcement back in the mid 2010s that a DVD yeah. set was forthcoming, but I don't see any evidence that it was ever released. So there's still another no. potential treasure trove of live music and rock concert and midnight special. I think debuted right around the same time, early yeah. set, early seventies and both stayed on the air for a number of years. I mean, we were too young to really see those shows in their heyday because they were late, late night. Yeah. Um, so in that era, mid seventies, late seventies, when we saw music on television, I mean, at least speaking for myself, it would have been like, daytime TV or weekend, like weekend shows. I, I feel like mostly the, the memories I have of, of musicians on TV was mostly from the Muppet show. Yeah. And Donnie Marie and the other, and other, you know, variety shows like that. So it would mostly, it would be just the, the family friendly variety shows. Just whatever the, fa- you know, whatever the parents happen to be watching sometimes yeah. and you were in the, you although were in my dad, and, yeah. my dad watched Hee Haw. Oh, yes. Uh, Absolutely. We watched that too. Sure. That was a a staple in our house. So that I do remember. But other than that, I don't really remember seeing anything, any other music related shows or anything that was, you know, like rock music. End of the 70s, early 80s, it would have been solid gold. It would have been. Oh, that's true. An American Bandstand. American Bandstand. Dance Fever. um, Mm -hmm. uh, Casey Kasem had uh, his TV component. Yeah, uh, yeah, that's chart, true. We would know, watch his that radio chart show, and that was like yeah. Saturday mornings or Saturday afternoons yeah. type. Yeah. But anyway, you know, I, uh, I, I'll say it again. I'm jealous. You got that midnight special set. I want that. It looks like Don Kirshner's rock concert still has yet to be released on home video. And there's really not a lot of them on YouTube either. I mean, I found some, but not. And and actually, same with midnight special. I mean, there are quite a few on YouTube, but there's so much more that's not available. The, th- the thing that's so cool about those two is they're actually live. They're actually performing live. Whereas, you know, like American Bandstand, and it was always just lip sync. So you weren't seeing a live performance. And I just thought of another daytime show that had lots of music on. Mike Douglas show. He oh, had yeah. All kinds of interesting musical acts on. I that's mean, he was, true. He... Did you watch the Dick Cavett show? Was that? No, no. Okay. Uh-uh. Tons of musicians were. Yeah. We're on Dick Cavett, but I think and, he goes, and Mike Douglas. There's a there's an episode of Dick Cavett with Gary Wright performing, and uh, George Harrison is playing slide guitar with him. I think just he kind had, of as a special guest, you know. I think and, he had several iterations of his show over the years. And when he initially came on, I believe he he went toe to toe with Carson late night. He was on ABC. Mm, okay, so um, it was a late night show. It wasn't, and yeah, I guess was, yeah, Mike Mike Douglas was like an afternoon, right? Like right. A yeah, that was daytime or something. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Now, Rob- in in concert was a a full performance by one band. So, I mean, if they do put those out on DVD, it's going to be a big box set. <laughs> it's yeah. going to be a lot of music. Yeah. Well, we've got more to talk about in 1976 on our next episode. Uh, another big hit from an artist who will make his second appearance on our playlist. Uh, another song from a group that uh, certainly had a live clip on Midnight Special back in the day, and another group where the lead vocalist is not the name on the record. 
<laughs> and of course, I'll pick my favorite album from 1976, which is uh, uh, a changes in the air in 1976 uh, in music. And this group best exemplified that change. Also, want to talk about the uh, the the music we've been spinning a lot lately. And Cheryl uh, gave you a little foregrounding of that with Super Furry Animals for me. I've been uh, playing them to death of late. Would love to talk more about them, but we are out of time for this week. So uh, more 1976 to come on our next episode of Matt and Cheryl's Your Excellent Playlist. But until then, I'm Matt. I'm Cheryl. Thanks for joining us, everybody.